So today we're doing the theology of the body. Uh, Dr. Ignacic does this course, or this topic in a whole course. I'm giving it to you in just two lectures, so obviously this is not going to be the same level of depth. If you've done his, Dr. Ignacic's course, then uh, you're just going to have to accept this as a little review. If you're doing his course at the moment, you know, obviously you're going to get much more depth from him. We are unusually fortunate to have a world-class scholar on that topic here on our faculty. I am not going to claim to be a world-class scholar, certainly on this topic. My knowledge of this topic is very derivative. Um, I have indicated in the bundle of notes I've given you for today and our next lecture what my sources are. Um, so what we're going to look at is an overview of the theology of the body today. Then our second lecture on this topic is going to be how that applies in particular to sexual morality. And then I'll also have in that second lecture some critiques, comments um, on the theology of the body by critics of it. Um, and then we'll also with the, uh, look briefly at least at some of the critiques of Christopher West. Um, who, at a popular level, is the most famous promoter of the theology of the body, um, though um, some claim he misrepresents it or has his own angle that he's throwing in there. So we're going to look at some of those things and whether the critiques of Christopher West are actually critiques of John Paul II or not. Um, so, just briefly mapping out what we're going to be covering. Theology of the body, one. So, I'm following um, um, I'm following Shu's um, schema in terms of how he summarizes um, John Paul II. And she refers to, as John Paul II very obviously does, but whether this is kind of the way to summarize or the only way to summarize his thought. Original man, historical man, eschatological man, as the, the three phases, modes that we see humanity existing. Um, so original man is characterized by solitude, by unity, by nakedness, that indicates our nature's gift and our nuptial nature. Historical man, which as we exist is after the fall, is characterized with those but also with shame, 
with lust, but also with grace uh, and redemption. And we'll note that something that comes out of this experience of shame is an awareness of what's called the personalist norm. That I experience shame in how I relate to another in terms of sexual desire and lust, but that has built into it an awareness that the way I'm supposed to relate to the other is as a person with dignity. Um, so this thing, the personalist norm. And the eschatological in heaven, um, that there will be this nuptial meaning even in heaven. Or maybe you might say most explicitly, most completely in heaven. So that the nuptial meaning in original man finds its fulfillment in eschatological man. And these, these three, blocking it out this way, as I say, I'm following shoes schema. Um, Tony Percy's book that I had you read from, um, he refers to four qualities of the body. That it is symbolic. That it is nuptial. That it is free and fallen. And that it is redeemed. Two of you are currently doing Ignatius course, or two of you have done it. I do <laughs> both. Both. Two have done it. I'm one of them. Okay. And two of you neither have done it nor are going to do it. Okay, right. Uh, so, in a sense, you're the two that we're having this two-fold lecture for. <laughs> um, I'm also, I think, I would regardless want to do it within this course because as I started the course saying, I think John Paul II has changed the whole context for looking at any of these questions in sexual morality. And even in topics when we might not think we are referencing him, we are in some sense referencing him in that he has changed the whole packaging of everything in this. And so if there is a more 
positive, wholesome, less embarrassed, less Jansenistic uh, approach to sexual morality in the modern church that isn't just a permissive giving in to modernity, then it's actually heavily influenced uh, by John Paul II. Okay, all that briefly what we're going to do today. So if you turn to my lecture notes, um, so I start on page one, just an overview thinking who is John Paul II? Um, he was the Pope for all of my youth until I was, let's see, almost 10 years a priest. So for my generation, I almost don't need to think of this. Uh, the more the years go by, I'm aware of teaching a younger generation some things that do need to be kind of pointed out. So, who was he? Uh, he was the longest reigning Pope of the 20th century, from 1978 to 2005, which is 26 and a half years, which is a huge block of time. A theologian and philosopher in his own right before becoming Bishop and Pope. And that's an important thing to note. Even if he'd not been made Pope, uh, even if he'd not been made Bishop, um, we might well be studying him as an obscure Polish voice. Um, what were his defining themes as Pope? Well, first I'd say the dignity of the human person. So his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, the Redeemer of Man, um, is starting on this theme of the dignity of the person. And with that, a vision of hope in human potential. So say, even amidst the horrors of 20th century wars and the twin problems of atheistic communist dictatorship and nihilistic materialist capitalism, he has this vision of hope in human potential. Encapsulated with the opening words at the balcony when he was elected, be not afraid. It'd be very easy for a pope, having lived through all that, and still in the midst of that, to be very true and very solid, but it's different to, in the midst of that, have a vision of the hope of what man is capable of being, both communally um, and for each of us as individuals. I say probably his defining moral theme is the dignity and beauty of sex and marriage, which obviously directly takes us to our, our course topic. Um, he was one of the Pariti at the Second Vatican Council, um, and both as a bishop and as a pope, very definitely saw his work, his teachings, as continuing the reform of the Second Vatican Council. Um, what did he achieve as Pope? I said that, that he shifted the state of the church from being in a state of chaos, confusion and decline in 1978 to being in a state of renewal and evangelization. I'd say, though I know, though the renewals remain very patchy and uneven in the church. 1978, it really, the pockets of strength and renewal that there are in the church today 
the pockets in the church where we can see the new evangelization that he called for being lived out and growing um, those pockets just weren't around before him the, the, he, he shifted very significantly the state of the church and then put the question is he John Paul the Great um, so I say many popes were saints but those popes called the great um, were three things they were saints they were teachers and they were administrative reformers and I know he was the weakest in the last of these categories um, in terms of administration I think that's kind of stating what's universally acknowledged and so how will history judge him is he worthy of the title of the great um, I think you probably will need a longer perspective I do note two big things in terms of administration um, the catechism of the church so he produced the first catechism in four centuries now on one level that was a huge teaching thing but it was also a thing of administration and the 1983 code of canon law so the first reform since 1917 um, that's got to rank as a significant administrative achievement and in changing the state of the church he kind of in traveling the world preaching to the world kind of bypassed a lot of weak bishops, dodgy bishops um, most of us that have come forward have come forward more influenced by him than influenced by our local bishop and that means regardless of how strong or weak he was as an administrator somehow he's got to get some credit for having achieved that that would be my take comments I'm presuming everything I've said there you have heard before but I'm trying to make sure before we look at his thought we kind of package him together okay briefly put then how do we describe what is this thing the theology the body um, I know it's articulated by him over a period of five years 1979 to 1984 so it becomes Pope in 78 within a year is articulating or beginning to articulate this five-year process of his teaching of the theology of the body somewhat curiously he made that teaching via his general audiences so the general audience is a long sermon but really kind of just the length of a sermon once a week um, for five years that means his teaching is in lots of small little bites um, it's also in his uh, apostolic exhortation familiaris consortio on family and marriage um, I've read some commentators dispute whether that should be included as theology of the body or not but I'm going to read it as all part of a whole does Dr. Ignatic comment on that? No, okay. Because his theology of the body catechesis 
is a thing in itself. Whether you read his apostolic exhortation that happened kind of in parallel as part of the same package. He does mention, not really this, but that the theology of the body was a book written in Polish before he became Pope, and then he chopped it up into pieces to give in his general audiences. So Dr. Nodick has his Polish version, yeah. follows along with us in English, and then corrects our understanding, even though he already corrected the English <laughs> originally. Yeah corrects the understanding in the light of the Polish original work. Yes. Yeah, okay. As far as like some, some words, because the, the, the big tome that everybody has is a translation from the Italian, mm -hmm. which is a translation from the Polish. Yeah. But he did the translation. Ignotic. No, no Waldstein. Uh, John Paul II did the translation into Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's all to say. It was a corpus. It wasn't just him thinking along. Sure. Yes. 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 Um, and one of the points to be clear of is where it was going to end up was clear in the mind of the the teacher at the beginning. Um, Okay, what, what does it have as content? I say it blends various things together. On one level, it's natural law. So it's a natural law, i.e. reason-based analysis of human nature. But, somewhat curiously, is articulated while giving scriptural exegesis, i.e. on Genesis, which, you know, is a slightly weird thing to do, that if you're giving a scripture commentary, that isn't natural law, but that is actually what he's articulating, because he's articulating something that can be understood or a large part of it by all humanity. He's reflecting on human experience. So my next point, an experiential reflection on human existence flowing out of his phenomenology um, philosophy. Um, again, this is an important part of his vision. It's, how do you speak to the modern world in terms of experience, in terms of looking at human behavior, phenomenology? And I say a focus on personalism and meaning rather than on law and obligation. So the, the pre-conciliar focus on, in moral theology in the manuals and on, on sexual morality would have told us the right thing, but all would have been framed in terms of law and obligation. And even really, um, Paul VI's encyclical, Humanae Vitae, isn't, doesn't really have the personalist vision uh, that we get in John Paul II um, as an articulation of those same truths. Um, I say this blend makes it difficult to read as straight theology. So if you've got a mixture of symbolism, of reflecting on experience, um, also a reason-based core content. How do you read that as straight theology? See, often he seems to mix analogy and symbolism. So, for example, his conservative critics disagree as to how to read his comparisons of the Trinity and family. 
Uh, note their father and son are not married. So uh, there's certain analogies um, in good Thomistic categories that's all fine and tidy, that we know the difference between an analogy um, and a thing in itself. Um, John Paul II, because he's very happy, kind of as a more artsy person, using symbolism, doesn't, doesn't push some of those points in a way that conservative critics will say, well, he isn't clear about whether this is an an analogical comparison or not. Um, and dare I say, if you read some of Scott Hahn's commentaries drawing on this, likewise a failure to understand the doctrine of analogy, of how with analogy something can both be true and not true. Um, you know, God is a rock, scripture says. Well, he's not a rock, uh, but he is. Um, and that's a metaphor, not analogy, but the same kind of thing. Um, okay, last point on the bottom of the page there, contraception. So after Humana Vitae, 1968, the church was very divided, and this was the thing. Is this a good priest? Is this a bad priest? Where does he stand on Humana Vitae? For a long period of time, that was the thing. It wasn't how does he say mass. It wasn't does he wear a black shirt. Um, where does he stand on Humana Vitae? A very divided church for a number of decades, with that as the, the issue. Now I say John Paul II's theology of the body, I say gave a new rationale for the old teaching. Uh, so that within that, therefore, contraception is its defining focus. And as we'll note, when does the whole catechesis finish? When he finally is articulating the last few um, audiences, the teaching on contraception. Um, so while on one level it's not true to say the whole thing is about contraception, on another level it is true to say it is all about contraception, that that's where it's heading as a practical focus. Page two, key themes of the theology of the body. So if you're wanting to trace my sources, you can look in the footnotes. But as I said already, top of the page there, the, the three states of man I referred to that I mapped out on the board. Here I'm following Walter Schuh's schema. Um, original man, historical man, eschatological man. So I say in speaking of these three states, John Paul II articulated his personalist vision. Human acts are performed through the body Human acts possess an intrinsic meaning due to the personal, nuptial meaning of the body. And I note, John Paul II's thought has many commentators who don't all follow the same schema in outlining his thought. Um, I say Christopher West is the most famous, especially here in the US. Um, I gave you in the reading, um, Anthony Percy's summary, which is very brief and therefore very lightweight, but um, another summary. Um, bottom half of the page there, I've basically got Percy's um, summary in bullet point form. So John Paul II's Genesis commentary, 
his focus on in the beginning, what is he portraying in the beginning there? First, the original solitude of Adam alone in the garden. We'll come back to that in a minute. Original unity of the first couple. Original nakedness with respect to the significance of the body to each other in relationship. And original sin, how sin changed the experience of all of the above. And in commenting on each of those four, uh, in his elaboration of these, John Paul II reveals what Percy summarizes as the four qualities of the human body. That it is symbolic, the body reveals man's inner nature, that it's nuptial, that the original unity shows how the body is inherently ordered towards nuptial union, that it's free and fallen, that the experience of original nakedness shows how we relate to each other freely, but the experience of original sin shows how we exist with the effects of the sins of our first parents. And the last quality that even after that factor of sin, that we are redeemed, that the experience of knowing and loving Christ enables us to understand the body in its redeemed state. comments thus far. Okay, I'm now going to unpack those categories a bit more slowly and a bit more fully. Um, and maybe in a way that uh, gives us more moment to comment and interact with what I'm saying here. I know what I'm summarizing here is a fairly text-heavy lecture. So the first of the three states, or the original man. Um, so repeating, uh, the account of Genesis was the prime focus of John Paul II's reflections. Uh, and if you recall a few weeks ago, when we overviewed the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage, I both started and ended that with Genesis, in the beginning. What was the state in the beginning um, that's what the Lord Jesus, when he talks about divorce and remarriage, he says, but in the beginning, um, St. Paul also in his writings refers to the beginning too. I note um, the experience of the original man is at the root of every human experience. I, this isn't just the description of the historical past in Eden. So this is an important thing. What's meant by original, on one level, yes, it is about our first parents, what they did, what they experienced. But in this vision is also an understanding all humans experience these things themselves. All humans know these things themselves. Um, So original has this twofold sense. It's true of all of us. Um, and I think to my mind, that's most immediately true with this question of original solitude. Uh, so the, the 
bullet points headings in bold here are following um, Percy's summaries here. Um, so first, original solitude. And I say this is possibly JP2's most profound observation, that Adam was alone in the garden, that Adam sought another, but he found no one, that none of the animals was a worthy helpmate for him. So there is within this a personalist focus that we're made for others, that we are inherently relational, a phenomenological focus that human experience teaches us this, both individually and collectively. Um, so the original man, Adam, experienced original solitude, the profound sense of knowing he was alone among God's creatures, that he alone of them was a person called to love, but there was no one for him to love. And so the Creator saying, it was not good for man to be alone. And therefore, God transformed Adam's original solitude into an original unity by creating Eve. Uh, do we all grasp the significance of this original solitude thing. I think in our preaching is a very powerful thing for us to be referring to. Um, one of the things in our own living of celibacy too, why is my experience of celibacy um, an important thing? Because in my own life, I am continually experiencing Adam's original solitude, this sense of needing another, finding completion in another, that ultimate another being beyond the divine, but therefore I am able to engage and relate in everybody I will ever meet as a priest. And sadly, often those already married, there is still a yearning for another, a yearning for completion, that we are inherently relational. Adam and Eve. So Eve's on the scene. So Adam, through his body, recognizes Eve as a person, as a person different from the other creatures. The unity of Adam and woman, man and woman in one flesh confirms that Adam and Eve were alone among God's creatures in their call to love. They recognize their uniqueness and their call to form a communion of persons. So this original solitude immediately then an original unity. So original unity, a communion of persons, then directly quoting John Paul II, living in a reciprocal fall, in a relationship of reciprocal gift. And this relationship is precisely the fulfillment of man's original solitude. So my being alone is about being made for another. Um, that my experience of solitude, I'm somehow not complete all by myself. This is what scripture indicates about Adam, um, but it's also what we can point to in every human being's experience.
original nakedness. Um, so, and here we need to be clarifying in the state of innocence. So Adam and Eve see each other naked. Adam and Eve recognized each other as persons through their bodies. And though the man and the woman were both naked, they were not ashamed. In their original nakedness, they saw and knew each other, quoting John Paul II, with all the peace of the interior gaze, which creates precisely the fullness of the intimacy of persons. And I comment, this gives a vision of the goodness of sexuality in contrast to preconciliar attitudes holding it in suspicion. So Adam and Eve, naked in their bodies, recognizing they are made for another, in their bodies recognizing that this other is the one I am made for. This reveals something about myself as well as reveals something about the other one. So original solitude, original unity, original nakedness. With this, the question of gift, um, which John Paul II reflects on multiple different ways, but um, I say here, all of creation is a gift from God to man. Creation understood this way reveals to us that God is love for selfless giving flows only from one who loves. The nuptial meaning of the body, i.e. that is ordered to mutual self-gift, reflects deep within the human person the very structure of creation itself, gift, and the meaning of God's creative act. So creation is gift from the divine, my body reflects that I am called to give myself. The nuptial meaning of the body is reflecting the pattern of creation in gifts. Uh, and as we'll note later in this course, repeatedly, um, self-gift, um, man finding himself and giving to another this was a theme of Gaudium et Spes of the Second Vatican Council, um, frequently speculated that John Paul II as a, one of the Parisi of the Council may have been the source of that. It certainly is in continuity, um, Vatican II, John Paul II. Over the page, um, so the body, um, so this little subsection could be titled symbolic, one of the four qualities of the body as Percy summarizes it. Um, the body and revelation. Um, so you know, revelation, what does God say to us? Um, well, the body reveals God and reveals man. So here, the human body revealed divine mysteries that God revealed through the body, reached its climax in the mystery of the incarnation, taking flesh, taking a body. The human body reveals God, but re the human body also reveals man to himself, taking that quote from Gaudium et Spes also. 
The body reveals that man is a personal subject. For example, Eve's body reveals her to Adam as a conscious subject, a person like him to be loved, personal. The body reveals a structure capable of giving itself to another. Adam can give his body, give his fertility to Eve and vice versa. And the body reveals a free subject. So in contrast to communist or Nazi ideology and oppression, John Paul II's teaching is permeated with an emphasis on freedom. Which can be a bit odd for us as Westerners reading John Paul II, because for us, or like as a Catholic Westerner, we can hear so much of the abuse of freedom that, well, it's just me wanting to do whatever I want to do. It's kind of fascinating to see how John Paul II is just really happy with the notion of human freedom and human dignity. In contrast with the two regimes he lived under, the communist, the Nazi, where freedom was just not part of the discussion at all. So I summarize in bold there, thus, the body reveals the essential core of being a person, the call to give oneself in love to another person and to receive in turn his or her gift of self. This is what's known as the nuptial meaning of the body. So this point, the body both reveals God and the body reveals man to himself. Comment, grasp, clear. So the body reveals that through this thing of revealing gift, that my body indicates I'm supposed to give myself to another. That's the order of creation, therefore reveals something about God, being giving, being loving, reveals also something about what I am. I'm made to give myself, I'm made for another, I'm made personally, relationally, made to love. Then the last of these sections here in terms of qualities of the body, um, the nuptial meaning of the body, uh, which is kind of re-saying what I've already said. So the conjugal act, the marriage act, it reveals man to himself, that the act is about union, uniting the couple in one flesh. The act is about self-giving, the mutual giving of fertility. And this mutuality entails an equal male-female dignity and complementarity. And the act is about generating new life. This is inherent in the nature of their union. And so what reveals the body to man? Fatherhood and motherhood explains what the body's about, or a large part of what it's about. That the gift of children, who are a sign of the couple's unity and inseparability, as well as a reminder of the couple's identity as father and mother. Okay, so let's pause there. All that is describing original man 
comments, reflections, what you think Dr. Ignotic would want to throw into the mix. And so one of the critiques of Christopher West is that has he taken all of this and just made it all about sex education for high school presentations and Catholic schools? Um, <coughs> um, what about the thought in terms of uh, an apologetic focus of the capacity of this to engage in our culture with human experience? The notion that these categories do speak to human experience. For Generation Z as well as for children of the 1970s. Yeah, I think there's an odd sense in which an unhappily married couple can grasp this quite profoundly in that they're, they're sensing something that they're lacking. Um, but yeah. I think you'll find over the years when you preach, there are two things that you'll get a very strong reaction when you preach on. One is suffering and the other is, is loneliness. Um, everybody has something to say about these things. That when people hear the, the priest, he's preaching about suffering today, everybody says, oh, this is gonna be relevant to me. 
And the only question is, does he have something useful to say? Um, you always get a reaction when you preach about suffering. Um, similarly, loneliness. Even in a happy marriage, there's this sense, there's always something a bit more that I sense I'm called to. Because um, I know finite, limited, sinful spouse is going to be fully adequate for the longing within me. Because uh, that ultimate longing is actually beyond this world. Um, which is also what, not yet touched on, but this original solitude is pointing towards. Adam's the only one of the animals made for God. Anything else in this section to comment on? So original solitude, alone, realizing you're alone, realizing you're made to not be alone. Original unity, the Adam and Eve see each other and know here is the one I'm made for. Um, their unity indicates something about what each of them are. Their nakedness in the body, they see what they are and what they are to the other. Um, and the language of gift, um, what am I? I'm made to give myself. This teaches me about God, that God has given us creation, that God is love, but also teaches me about what I am supposed to be. The language of gift, I am made to give myself, I am made to love, um, I am made not as a thing, but as a person. Okay, moving on. So, original man. So, following Shu's schema, summarizing all this, the next category, um, historical man. So, historical, what does the word mean? Meaning, as we actually encounter man and woman, no longer in the innocence of Eden, affected by the inheritance of original sin. Um, so, some bullet points here indicating what that is about, um, or some significant aspects of it. Shame. Now, important to note, shame isn't just in the negative, as I'll, I'll note here, it actually indicates something positive. But, shame. Quoting Genesis, Adam and Eve hid their nakedness from each other. But they only did this after sin. The shame hindered man and woman from being a communion of persons. Their bodies can no longer perfectly express their personhood. From now on, their and our bodies and wills will not always operate in harmony to reveal the value of each other as a person. 
Shame expresses the disturbance of the tranquility, specifically at the level of sexual complementarity through which persons have been gifted to each other. So that what's the shame being focused on in this context? How I relate to the other. Um, so lust is the next bullet point. What is the source of this shame? Lust. The source of the shame is lust because, in bold, they no longer see each other exclusively as a person to be loved. Rather, they see the other, at times, as a person to be used as an object. So the point being, I sense within myself this inclination, this desire to use another <gasps> when I see her body, rather than to relate to her as a person. And yet at the same time I realize I'm not supposed to treat her as an object. I'm supposed to treat her as a person. Continuing my section, thus lust threatens the nuptial meaning of the body. If the body has this wedding marriage symbolism, but I'm inclined to just use the body as an object and the other as an object. So the harp has become a battlefield between lust and love. Now a key principle that this heads to is what's called the personalist norm. So person, and obviously we can recognize Kant in some of this structuring, persons are to be loved as persons, not used as objects. So positively, the experience of shame arises from our awareness that the other person is to be valued precisely as a person. So to repeat that summary form, this thing of shame, um, obviously shame as a word is about something negative, but it's also an experience that immediately is teaching me something positive. I see the woman, I have shame at the fact that I experience lust, I experience a desire to treat her as an object. But the reason I'm experiencing shame is I am simultaneously realizing I'm not supposed to relate to her that way. I'm supposed to relate to her as a person, as someone to give myself to, as someone to love, not someone to use. So the shame thing is actually something very positive in what it reveals to us. And again, I think that's a point in our preaching. There's fairly easy potential to kind of pull something out there uh, and to say, well, we all have this awareness. And it's actually a realization of just how dignified the other is but also that there is a greater dignity in myself. I recognize I'm called to be something more. I'm called to a better way of relating. Okay, so I recognize there's a problem. I recognize this thing, shame, redemption, one of the other 
four qualities Percy summarizes with. The reality and possibility of redemption. So I say sin does not have the last word. Christ has redeemed us bodily on the cross. St. Paul um, refers to the redemption of our bodies, um, the transformation by grace. And then I've got a string of different quotes here from John Paul II about purity. So purity, which starts in the sense of temperance, becomes more than mere abstinence, so that it's truly felt with the heart, restoring feeling and even mere looks, so that they regain that authentically spousal content of their meaning. In contrast with someone dominated by concupiscence, the person of purity, in possessing himself more fully, he can become more fully a true gift for another person. So purity isn't just self-control, purity isn't just temperance, purity isn't just restraining and abstinence. Um, it's about recovering that authentically spousal meaning uh, in how we relate to another. Um, footnoting another audience, piety, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the body goes with purity and joy. And when redeemed, men and women can find themselves in the freedom of giving themselves. So before turning the page, all of that is historical man as we experience him. So the original man in the beginning, also original as in we all have this experience, what it means to be human. Historical as we find him in human history, so fallen, shame, lust, but also capable of transformation, capable of being redeemed, capable of cooperating with grace. Yeah. I could be wrong, but from when I we took theology of the body, I thought I remembered that shame was more of like, it was less about using somebody else and more about the fear of being used by someone. And how would At that, least that was some aspect of it. Um, and how would the fear of being used be shame? Uh, I think that sounds like, oh, so then Adam and Eve made clothes to like, they're, you're ashamed of being fully who you are. You're afraid, like there's that fear so you hide things. And like shame protects the value of sexuality by But it, like, and partly that was in sexuality, but partly just in other things. You, like, you don't tell everybody all of yourself. You, know, you communicate different aspects of yourself more fully to different people. And so is there a better word than shame? Um, I don't know. I just... Has, 
significations yeah. that they use it as. I mean, there's definitely this part of it too, but it also had the other, like, not wanting to be used. And I think that's what, at least that's from our class, I think that's what we're okay. And as I said, my notes are very second-hand in, in the scholarship. Um, David, was there something you were throwing into that? No. Okay. So an element of shame that is, uh, say that again. Not wanting to be, be used not by So I'm emphasizing in there, shame at feeling my desire to use another. There also being this aspect of shame where I fear being used by another. So making clothes to protect myself that way. Um, and so underlying both of those, the sense of seeing something about how I am to relate to another in that sense of shame. Um, that I'm neither to be used nor to use another. Um, the nuptial meaning, the self-gift meaning, that's what we're supposed to be about. And thus the personalness norm, treating each other and being treated as a person. Anything else here? I think this might be a little more relatable or like a, the way the inroads towards someone uh, as apologetic-wise. Yeah. And certainly is very relatable, yeah. Not to exclude the other, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can throw in, um, what about the young man who does just live for lust and nightclub after nightclub, um, one night stand after one night stand actually says he feels no shame. His experience? I think he's lying to himself. Yeah, I think. Yeah, because there is some aspect where you can just hide all this. As long as you're busy, you're not. Right. Like, you, you need a little bit of silence for any of this to hit home. If you're always distracted, it's. 
you may know that there's some, like, you're looking for something, but you just seem to find it in whatever the next thing is. Right. And so if we're preaching, if we're speaking about some aspects of human experience, to always be aware there are people who have so smothered their capacity to, to self-reflect that they may struggle to engage with any of this. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that. I, mean, I, was, I was thinking of where was that connected to self-reflection. Yeah. There was some song I heard on the radio once. I forget what the rest of it was, but there was some line that was like, I'm not happy, I'm just a lot less sad. I think it was like about drugs or what, I don't know what the, yeah. what he was saying, but he was like, he knew that there was something wrong, and then what he was doing didn't fix the problem, but it distracted him yeah. from it. And I think that's right. how a lot of people live. They know they're not happy, but this is, makes them so they're not sad. Or less sad. Less sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that great goal of being less sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a great motivation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move along here. So, the last of these three uh, parts of the schema, uh, eschatological man, kind of where it's heading. So eschatological, stating the obvious, what it means in the state of heaven, the state of the eschaton. Um, our bodies are not just redeemed, but they're going to be resurrected. So beyond our historical experience, there will be another experience again in the eschaton. And so the resurrection is the definitive accomplishment of the redemption of the body. I say, then, the existence of bodies in heaven teaches us about their dignity, about the dignity and meaning of sexuality. Um, your body is so important, you will have a body in heaven. Sexuality in heaven. So John Paul II says, our resurrected bodies will be of the same gender as our earthly bodies. Uh, an interesting point to think with our gender thoughts earlier this course. Human bodies will preserve their specific masculine or feminine character. The resurrected bodies will be spiritualized and changed, even though still male-female. Um, so your body will be spiritualized, but humans will not become angels. I guess you all know this is an important thing in our preaching um, and at funerals, you know, Johnny's, Johnny's an angel now, or Johnny's become one of the stars. No. <laughs> um, so your body is so important, you're going to have a body in heaven. Harmony will be restored that spiritualized bodies in heaven will have a deep harmony between body and soul. The flesh will no longer make war with the spirit, our bodies will be spiritualized and our humanity divinized. And thus the redemptive transformation will be complete. All of this indicating the fulfillment of the nuptial meaning of the body. The nuptial meaning points to relationship and love. The nuptial meaning relates to the Trinity. 
David, could you read that final quote there? So this is directly from JP2. The original and fundamental meaning of being a body is also being as a body, male and female, that is precisely that spousal meaning, is united to the fact that man is created as a person and is called to a life in communione personarum. Marriage and procreation do not definitively determine the original and fundamental meaning of being a body, nor of being as a body, man and male and female. Marriage and procreation only give concrete reality to that meaning in the dimensions of history. It's actually quite a lot in there. Yeah. So it's pointing to the Trinity, the fundamental meaning of the body. That all our talk that we're going to be now unpacking for the benefit of our course about marriage and procreation. So that gives a concrete reality to that meaning in history. But there's a deeper meaning that is beyond that itself, relating to the Trinity, to the communion of persons. Comments on this section? they're already there. Yeah. Yeah. And yet both of them somehow taken up and transfigured, transformed in that process. But good question. So just because John Paul II says it doesn't make it de fide, um, obviously it's coherent with what he's saying that being male or female is just an inherent part of what you are um, and therefore doesn't get destroyed in heaven but brought to fulfillment. You know what St. Paul says when he, he says, people ask, what will the resurrected body be like? And he says, these are stupid questions. Um, and there is a level in which these are stupid questions. But they are questions we ask, yeah? Um, so it's a stupid question because the transfigured body will be so changed and glorified that we in this world cannot see and comprehend it. But we do know it won't be about the destruction of our nature, but about its completion and fulfillment. Therefore, part of my nature is being male and female. That will not be destroyed, but somehow completed. But that it will somehow be experienced very differently. So there'll be no giving in marriage, there'll be no new children, 
that would make being male and female very different. But it is just part of what I am. And what will the experience of our sexuality be like in heaven if our sexuality is more than just procreation? And how we relate to women in heaven, how women in heaven relate to men in heaven. Whether there are still stand-up comedians in heaven that talk about how men and women relate to each other. These are stupid questions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does this follow necessarily? I mean, since the like the, the article on like souls are not sex, um, or we need some something that maintains our um, our sexuality. And you've answered your own question. This is another what this is, like, no, no, a good question. Well, so I think I would be thinking of how wounds of this world still exist in heaven. So our Lord, when he rises from the dead, still has the wounds in his hand. They haven't been healed in the sense of vanished but somehow they become a thing glorious. Um, all the wounds in my nature, in my body, in my living, um, in the resurrection of the body will somehow be transfigured, glorified. And in as much as I have lived them in a grace-filled, in a charity-filled way, those wounds will be a thing of glory. So the intersex person, the person with an intersex body, somehow how he has carried that difficulty, carried that cross, will become part of what he is transfigured and glorified as. I'm sure there's more than that, but I think that would be that would be consistent with everything else of our carrying of the cross. And and the intersex is a wound in our, our nature and our body. It's not a thing in itself. Um, but isn't there in some sense where the body would be perfected? You know, like... Healed. Somebody, yeah, it's like somebody who's cancer got their cancer in heaven. That's a cross that they carry. Somebody one way or like some of these like imperfections would be perfected. And how would that work with the intersex? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. Other than 
God's got it in hand. <laughs> well, well, I think there's some things that ultimately that's that's a big thing. And for me to pretend to someone I know exactly how your situation is going to be resolved in heaven, uh, I don't. Um, okay, all of that was in a sense, the introduction I wanted to do on the theology of the body before looking at how we were going page seven onwards to look at that, particularly with respect to the marital act. Um, what have I asked you to read for next class? Um, Dr. Cahal. Okay, right. Um, to make sure we can get through it, page 12 and 13 of these notes, um, if you could try and go through those as well, um, just so you arrive with some of the criticisms already made. Boomer complaints. Boomer complaints. <laughs> okay. The name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.